Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for June 5th, 2018. Uh, I'm skipping the music, and we're going to go straight into an interview. It's a real treat, I think, for you guys. Uh, I'm going to be speaking in a few minutes here with Ryan Cooper. Uh, Ryan is the national correspondent for The Week magazine, uh, and he is a phenomenal observer of American politics, and particularly Democratic Party politics, who should really be... Uh, given all the op-ed columns in all the newspapers, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he's been doing a lot of work kind of going around and talking to Democratic candidates, and I'm going to ask him some questions about what they're telling him with regard to foreign policy. I'm expecting to be incredibly disappointed, and I'd like to share that disappointment with you all here uh, today. But we'll see. We'll see. Ryan will be on here in uh, in just a minute, uh, and hopefully he'll have some, some better news than I'm expecting to get. Okay, so I'm joined now via Skype uh, by Ryan Cooper. He's the national correspondent for The Week magazine. Ryan, thank you. Uh, very much for agreeing to talk with me. My pleasure. So, uh, you wrote a piece that uh, went up yesterday uh, called The Democratic Party is Flying Blind on Economics, and we're not going to talk so much about economics here. Um, we will a little bit. We'll talk about trade uh, in a bit here, but um, it. I'm, I want to pick, pick out one sentence from this piece which which i know sucks but um you, yeah, that's you, right. uh, you said in the piece uh, that uh after talking with a number of democratic candidates uh your conclusion is that the party has developed uh this, i'm quoting you now a, a strong consensus on social justice issues like gay marriage transgender transgender rights and police brutality on foreign policy, it seems somewhere in the middle, not exactly favoring imperialist wars of aggression, but not terribly interested in a new paradigm either. Uh, and then you go on to talk about how they really have no message on economics, which is a problem all in itself. Uh, but on foreign policy, I, I, saw, I read this article and I, I, I thought it was great and it made me very angry. Um, and, but, but I picked, I wanted to pick out this sentence because, you know, when we talk about foreign policy around here, uh, and ask you, uh, what, you know, to expand on that, basically, what are you hearing uh, to the extent that you're hearing anything from these candidates about foreign policy? Uh, like what are, what are you hearing from them? Um, yeah, you know, I actually had a, a whole bunch of material from, uh, you know, that like I talked to some of these folks for like, you know, nearly an hour. And uh, so for some of them, we talked for quite a while about foreign policy. Um, and so, you know, I just didn't make it into the article. And um, it's it seemed like, you know, there there was like uh, Richard Ojeda, for example, he had a, a pretty comprehensive view that you might you might call like a kind of realist anti-war stance, you know, and he was in Iraq in like 2000 and 2004, 2005, something like that. And he, you know, just sort of is like, what are we doing over there? You know, this is just such a big waste of money. Um, a lot of the others, you know, it was just like, like kind of just saying the right things, you know, um, okay. you know, that there was, <clears throat> uh, 
you know, most people were just like, oh, yeah, Trump's really screwing up all our allies. They all hate us now. Um, no one was willing to defend the Yemen thing, you know, because that's something I brought up, to, I think, to everyone that that the Democrats, um, you know, were like the some of the centrists, just like some of the centrists were were, were voting for bank deregulation. No, nobody would defend either the bank deregulation or the. Uh, um, so they wouldn't defend like our involvement in Yemen. Yeah, or the, okay. specifically the Democrats who went with Trump to allow Trump to continue, you know, right. genociding the the people of Yemen. But interestingly, the only person who had really well considered views on everything, the only person who was who seemed to have really thought deeply about foreign policy, was a person from the third district in Colorado, which is the. Uh, the Western District, uh, like the Western Slope of Colorado, and I just interviewed her because that's where I come from in Colorado, and I had knew absolutely nothing about her. But unprompted, she brought up, you know, oh, you know, all these years of of uh, interventions, we've really just been very badly served. You know, Vietnam is a disaster. Oh, you know, look at Iran back in '53 with Mossadegh. You know, that was just a, a terrible mistake, and it was like. Wow, someone who knows some history. My God. <laughs> and, you know, she says she's not, you know, she's not a leftist. She, she, she's like a little more pragmatic, I guess, uh, in terms of her presentation. You know, she's all about, you know, she knows all the bills cold. But um, she also seems like genuinely competent in a way that centrists like generally aren't. Um, and she did favor like Medicare for all, but yeah, it was, it it was pretty it was pretty interesting to see like a, almost like a George McGovern type of person coming up from literally nowhere yeah. in Colorado. That's kind of wild. So, is is it your sense then? I mean, you you have the Iraq War veteran, and the the Democratic Party seems to be recruiting among Iraq War vets fairly heavily for candidates uh, who obviously have thought about one sliver of U.S. foreign policy over the last 15 to 20 years uh, very deeply, and they, they have thoughts about Iraq and maybe Afghanistan, but, you know, it doesn't sound like, um, you know, anything much broader than that. Is it your sense that the candidates aren't giving this a lot of thought because, as we all know, and as polls show over and over again, foreign policy doesn't really move voters, and so it's not a uh, something that that they want to spend a lot of time on. Um, or is it because I, I don't know? Is there another reason they just uh, you know uh, seem to kind of blow it off, or the, you know it's too complicated and they they're not they haven't really f- wanted to dive into it? Is there any does anything emerge in terms of? Like, why there's no foreign policy message coming out of the, these candidates? Yeah, well, I, I have some sort of sneaking suspicion. You know, I, I think that the 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 big problem for Democrats is that the last, shall we say, you know, uh, since since like the Persian Gulf War, you know, the first Gulf War. American foreign policy has been, you know, a series of 
r- really severe disasters. I mean, it's especially since the turn of the century, you know, just just absolute catastrophes. You know, we seemingly can't do anything without causing some sort of famine or or massacre. Um, and Democrats have been, by and large, heavily complicit in that, you know. And I think the complicity is is often down to the fact that, you know, since since Vietnam, the way that people have thought about, like, kind of patriotism and, you know, the American hegemonic order is just that, like, if America does it, that means it's good. And, you know, it's like you, you listen to, uh, you know, why... Um, Oh, what's his name? The 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 union boss in 1972 is George Meany. Why he wouldn't vote for McGovern is because McGovern was against Vietnam, and he was a big like, oh, our boys are over there, and you know that thinking has persisted down through the ages. And Democrats, I think, like if you're any sort of a centrist establishment type of person, you know, you're trying to seek the credibility of the existing social order. It, I think it just becomes very difficult to grok the the scale of the disaster that, that U.S. foreign policy has been over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. I mean, just unimaginable destruction and horror for pretty much no reason and no benefit to the United States at all. And that's just like a tough thing. I, I think people's aversive instincts kick in and they're like, well, you know, we need to work with our allies to do something, you know, and never been like, how about we just stop drone bombing people? You know, like, let's just stop that. You know? Right. I, well, I mean, I think it's, I think you're right. There's, there's a lot of kind of, um, unwillingness to tackle with what we've done, uh, in a serious way. But I think also, if you look at, the Democratic leadership in Congress, and we can kind of, I mean, I'm kind of moving away from uh, these candidates and looking at the party itself and the party sure. establishment. But if you look at, you know, Chuck Schumer, Steny Hoyer, the foreign policy leaders of the Democrats in Congress, Bob Menendez, Ben Cardin, Elliot Engel, Brad Sherman, there's not that much daylight between some of these guys and the Republicans on foreign policy. Um, you know, somebody like Schumer, who is is on the wrong side of almost every foreign policy issue, but because Donald Trump is in office, he gets to kind of uh, play the critic and snipe from the sidelines instead of actually having to articulate his monstrous foreign policy views. You know, he, there's a guy who I think has skated by on having voted in favor of the Iraq war where Hillary Clinton was rightly pilloried for voting in favor of the Iraq war and has suffered consequences from it. Chuck Schumer has skated for 15 years having voted for that war and having supported, you know, you can run down a list. He's supported moving the the embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, yeah. he's, he's now attacking Trump from the right on negotiating with North Korea and insisting on, you know, that Trump, you know, make the North Koreans pay for what they've done. And it's just, it's, it's frustrating because I think among the base, among the Democratic base, there is a, a, an appetite for a different kind of foreign policy. But 
among the establishment, it's still shocking when you hear somebody like Bernie Sanders speak publicly about the Palestinians like they're actual human beings and they deserve actual human rights. It's still stunning to hear a Democratic leader say that. Do you do you think there's a there's a movement that will you know when these guys kind of age out of their jobs that that the Democratic Party might actually change some on foreign policy or is this sort of baked into the uh, the the system at this point? Uh, that's a tough one. You know, I think <laughs> it 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 it's it's kind of a a situation where. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm talking about like the up and comers in in my article, you know, sort of selected at random. Um, And certainly there, yeah, you would say there's really no appetite for Schumerism, even among like the candidates selected by the DCCC. Um, And it's it's one of those things where where like the you know, there's a sort of establishment view that is prop is is like protected and propagated by not allowing ever to be any disagreement about it and the moment there is you know then it just kind of collapses because there's no constituency for it and i think that's kind of the situation they're in you know and it just it kind of depends on whether i would say you know what like who ends up being the next you know like it, the next, uh, pr- probably I would say the person in the house, you know, because Nancy Pelosi is what, 77. Uh, Chuck Schumer is uh, quite a bit younger than that. He's what, 67 something. Uh, he could so. probably hang on for a while longer. And, you know, whether people see any sort of percentage, you know, that, that I mean, like the thing about Schumer is just, he's just so feckless, just absolutely myopic, utterly, utterly unequal to the task of confronting Trump in any way, you know, to defend democracy. And, um, you know, that there, there, you know, when, when, when Bernie says those sort of things, there's like a, there's a small but significant number of people who are like, yes. And even, even though he's not even that great on foreign policy, he's right, like, no, I mean, he's, he's okay. basically, what the center left foreign policy option should be. I mean, he's not even that far to the, uh, to any kind of, you know, in, in the, in the right direction. Uh, but it's still even, even that much deviation from the, the kind of centrist blob mentality, conventional wisdom is, is shocking to hear from a major politician. Yeah. And the other, the other piece of it is that, you know, Trump, has criticized the Iraq war more strongly than I think anyone in either party has ever done. He, he, he had that famous thing in the debate. This was what, like late 2015 ish where he just savaged the entire thing. <laughs> he destroyed we, Jeb Bush. I remember that. That was and, amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, I was just howling at that and he paid no price for it. There's no constituency for this on the right either. No one wants these imperialist wars of aggression. You know, it's like, like I mean, yeah, there's like xenophobic attitudes and desire to like shoot missiles at people, kick the immigrants out of the country, but like to occupy or, you know, where Iran for for 15 years. Nobody wants to do that. Um, and And so I guess, you know, 
what is somewhat encouraging is is the consensus is palpably rickety in both parties you know like the neocons have sort of been kicked out of the republican party and they're trying to burrow themselves into the democratic party and like there's sort of some success but like Democrats, I think, you know, the base voters are pretty suspicious of people like Max Boot, you know, or Bill Crystal. Um, You know, these are these are this is not an organic sort of relationship here. And so I I would hope that, you know, there might be some sort of grassroots rebellion, you know, in the House or somewhere. You know, people it's like if you could just get a bit of sustained national attention as someone who has a bit of spark and energy and and more of an organic like organic articulation of what sort of base regular liberals are thinking about foreign policy to just like, let's just stop making horrible mistakes for a while and see how that works. What do you think? I mean, it, it seems like, you know, to the extent that uh, you take somebody like Bill Crystal or David Frum or uh, Max Booth, the neocons who uh, started out, you know, as, uh, never Trumpers, and you know when Trump won the nomination, they started gravitating over and trying to, as you say, burrow themselves into the Democratic Party. It's it strikes me that for somebody like Schumer, who's this like completely obsessed with, uh, you know, he's the one who who made the quote, you know, for every working class Democrat we lose, we'll pick up two Republicans in the suburbs. He's obsessed with this notion that there's this huge population of moderate Republicans out there that the Democratic Party can get if they just, you know, go right enough. And it strikes me that it's a it's a cynical trade. It's it's like we know that the base, you know, the, the Democratic base is not does not agree with um, you know, this sort of interventionist, call it liberal interventionism, or on the right, you know, neoconservatism. They don't agree with this kind of foreign policy. But they also don't vote on foreign policy. So if we can get the Bill Crystal and, you know, the 10 people in the country who give a shit what Bill Crystal says, then, you know, that gives us an inroad into these suburban Republican voters without sacrificing anything that's going to really cost us with our base. And then you kind of have to layer on top of that the fact that I don't think there's very much about Bill Crystal's foreign policy that a guy like Schumer would disagree with. So, you know, do you, do you think it's do you think there's a political calculation to uh, embracing these guys that that relies on the fact that, you know, as I said earlier, foreign policy doesn't traditionally move votes unless there's a, a major, you know, war or other kind of catastrophe? Um, well, I think, you know, I, I think it's a. Alex Breen had a good piece about Chuck Schumer a while ago. Like he, he, uh, talking about his like ideal voter. Um, and it's literally like he, Oh, the ones he, he created. Yeah. The two. Yeah. He, fictional. In, oh God. Yeah. Invented somebody, you know, <laughs> so uh, this family of white people, upper middle-class white people in Long Island or something like that. And, um, and this, this is like the, the person he caters to. And I think that goes, that goes to show you that, 
pretty much all the time when someone's making that sort of political calculation about what sort of demographic is you're more likely to get is usually a statement of preference. You know, it's like these these are the type of demographic that I like to cater to. I identify with these people. I think they're underrepresented. And so there's there's definitely there's definitely a big, you know, whiff of that in terms of these, you know, these Benjamin Wittis or however you pronounce that guy's name, you know, that that type of, you know, move, moving to yes. the imaginary center um, of, of politics to, uh, you know, to, to capitalize on dissatisfaction with Trump. But I think, you know, the the. When it comes down to political brass tacks, you know, there is that graph going around that. Um, Trump's approval rating among self-identified Republicans is it's like huge. the highest. Higher than everybody except W after 9-11. Yeah, right. Republicans love Trump. Trump triggers the libs. And contrary to what I thought, it's not the Republican Party identification is not really that much different now than it was like a couple of years ago, you know, under Obama. Um, it's lower than it was like like under George W. Bush, but it's it's not like there's been some huge collapse of Republican Party identification under Trump. It's like ticked down a little bit, right? Um, and so when people are looking at this, it's like you, you know there is just nobody there, right? The, all, that that all, population of suburban Republicans doesn't exist. Moderate right. Republicans, the ski dude dealership owners, they love Trump. They love triggering the libs. <laughs> Just as much as the so-called, you know, the Trump country uh, broke uh, ex-coal miners <laughs> with black lung in the diners of Kentucky or whatever. So I want to talk about the Trump effect on the Democrats, but I'm, I'm going to do that uh, in a few minutes. There's a question that I just thought of that uh, you may have some opinions about. To what extent is the, uh, I guess, the cause, if, if you want to call it that, of changing the way the Democratic Party approaches foreign policy. It, to what extent is that hindered by the fact that there's no institutional basis for it in Washington? And by that I mean, you know, if you go around to the major Democratic Party think tanks where people are making policy and recommendations that the the leadership of the party picks up on there's no outfit you know be it the you know the center for american progress or brookings or um, you know the the uh, uh, new american security uh, you know any of these places that's really doing any kind of left foreign policy it's all this sort of standard centrist interventionist stuff and i'll plug uh the the fellow travelers blog here i know you're familiar with that uh those guys are trying to build some capacity for left foreign policy but there's not much of it out there and there's the institute for policy studies the uh the american friends committee there, there are a few small outfits but in terms of these big shops that really influence democratic policy, nobody is interested in, uh, you know, really tackling honestly issues of left foreign policy. Do you think that's 
I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that's cause uh, a cause of the party's kind of myopathy about this stuff, or an effect of you know the fact that there's no market for it? There's no there are no leading Democrats who are looking for this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, it's definitely it definitely goes both ways, but I think it's 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 partly a cause for sure. Um, I know that you know. I mean, this is an effect of bribery, basically. You know, the the all the big think tanks have been suborned by big money. You know, Qatar is like just doling out dollars to everyone, um, and you know, various other like you know, AI packs sort of. Uh, a lot of there's a lot of big money behind them. No, I mean the Gulf philosophy. countries are all it's Qatar, Qatar, and. The UAE or the two big ones, or the Saudis are involved in it too. They're they're definitely, you know, buying <laughs> think tanks. Yeah, yeah. But what um, the 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 sort the sort of flip side to that is that you know there 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 are a lot of very credible arguments that are easy to make, and just just like if you can get them out there in a sort of think tanky fashion. Um, you know, it, it could it can really go uh, crazy lengths. You know, the IPS, God love them, they just are are really not that great at getting their stuff out there. You know, don't have a big media profile. Right. It's, um, I mean, a lot of it's it is the funding though. I mean, these these places don't yeah. get a lot of money because they push um, not not necessarily on foreign policy. Although there's some of that, and we'll talk about trade here too. Um, but you know, especially on domestic things, they're not pushing the kind of ideas that get you big corporate donations to help, you know, get the message out. Yeah, that's right. But I, but I will say that, that, you know, this fact of, you know, sort of like the market being the, the quote unquote market for ideas, a very stupid idea, but, but the, there, there are a lot of obvious arguments to make. That if you make them and you put them out there like that, then you can get attention far in excess of the money that is put into it. And just for, you know, just for an example, like I've been doing some stuff with Matt Brunick's think tank, which is run on, you know, a shoestring. He's on, you know, uh, some, you know, eight, ten thousand dollars a month or something like that. And, um, you know, literally, literally like 0.2 percent of the budget of heritage. Uh <laughs> And he, he spends almost almost all that money on on just producing policy papers, and you know we did one on on uh, I did one with this Irish fellow named Peter Gowan named on social housing, and it just exploded. It was all over the place. People were yelling at me on Twitter for weeks and weeks. <laughs> and so I think that you know it, I mean it's part of the think tank game is to just it's like. It's not, you know, money isn't isn't even like the the biggest part of it. It's it's about like presenting yourself as serious and just sort of appropriating the model, the 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 uh, kind of reputation of having lots of very smart, credential people sitting in a basement somewhere just thinking about all the issues. Right. And like, yeah, it's good to have expertise, but sometimes you just need people to say the bleeding obvious. Right. The Iraq war sucked. (laughs) I mean, even that can be difficult, though, because, I mean, as you know, this sort of 
on on all uh, you know range of issues from you know foreign policy to domestic policy and everything in between there is a certain set of opinions that automatically are classified as serious and for foreign policy that's uh, drone strikes and intervention and sanctions or you know those are all serious things but if you want to argue against those things you're already kind of starting uh, at a disadvantage because you have to convince your audience and convince the people who uh, kind of gateway to a bigger audience that you know th- this is this is actually serious that it's you know worthy of discussion yeah rick rick perlstein in his uh nixon land book he had he had a great observation about when the pentagon papers came out um and it turned out that like basically all the anti-war the, the most radical anti-war critics of the the war had been right from the very beginning and like it was even worse than they said it actually made it even harder for that to be accepted by the sort of mainstream establishment because they were so invested in not being the dirty hippies um and so yeah it's definitely you know it's it's definitely a a a difficult thing to overcome but i i also think you know it's sort of like the schumer thing and um and like when Bernie almost knocked off Hillary in the presidential race, like the establishment is is weak and brittle, you know, the, and and incompetent, and they don't have a terrible amount of credibility. You know, this isn't like, like like in you know previous ages, like I don't know, nineteen nineties or something, where the, the just like the the overwhelming consensus. You know, people there's just no respect for the status quo. Right, and it's like and it's the, easier now to get around them. To some degree, yeah. and and get your message out, and I think you, I mean, I think you make a good point that it, you can start if you're trying to build credibility and seriousness. You you start with the obvious stuff. You start with, hey, the Iraq War sucked in every way. Let's not do anything <laughs> like that anymore. And then you know people start to listen because they think, well, yeah, it did suck, and you know maybe we should do something else. Yeah, like yeah, the Iraq War sucked. Congratulations, you're now a senior policy analyst at the <laughs> in- Institute for Intelligence and Foreign Policy. That's all it takes, man. That's you know, it's it's not that big a leap. So I want to talk to you about, um, as I as I said, I want to talk to you about the Trump effect specifically. And there's, I look at this in a couple of different ways. Um, there's it's easier obviously in some senses to be the party that's out of power because you can just criticize and you don't have to uh, you know articulate a vision so much as take down the vision such as it is of the party that's in power it it seems like and i want to ask you know i want to ask you uh first of all if you see any sign that the reflexive opposition to Trump is kind of bleeding into rethinking some foreign policy issues. And specifically, uh, you know, as, as an example, I would use the Iran deal, which all of those guys I talked about earlier, Chuck Schumer, Bob Menendez, Ben Cardin, you know, Elliot Engel, all those guys, Brad Sherman, opposed when Obama negotiated it. 
but now they're in a position where they're defending it or at least criticizing Trump for <laughs> withdrawing from it and violating it. Do you think that's just sort of a, a, a cynical kind of knee-jerk thing to be on the opposite side of Trump? Or, you know, is there any way that that could turn into like a, uh, you know, maybe maybe that wasn't such a bad deal. Maybe we were wrong to oppose it. And, you know, it's it's uh, it would be OK for the next Democratic president to do a deal like that with with a country like Iran. Um, I, I believe it, it probably would. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of hard. You know, Chuck Schumer has been, you know, notably quiet on the Iran deal since Trump killed it. I mean, most of the Democrats, you know, Bernie's, as usual, the only one who's trying to actually save Obama's key foreign policy thing. Um, I and um, you also see, I think, maybe a downside of that where, uh, you know, people are being skeptical of the North Korea deal, which well, seems that, like. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my, my next question. It's kind of the flip side of this. When you you see the, like, I mean, really serious attacks coming from leading Democrats, prominent Democrats, about the North Korea negotiating process, which has been haphazard, and there's all kinds of ways that it could go very, very badly, and it's, uh, you know, there are plenty of reasons to criticize it, but you're they come at it from this kind of, you know, you can't concede anything to Kim Jong-un, you have to make sure they completely denuclearize, and how dare you, and, you know, it's, it's very much running from what we would consider the traditional right on foreign policy against what Trump is doing here. And and I the, I feel like, and I, you know, I wanted to get you to uh, comment on this. There's a risk there, too, that you box yourself in as a party, and then the next Democratic president, who we presumably trust to handle foreign policy issues, comes along and says, I want to do a deal with North Korea or I want to do a deal with, you know, whatever the pariah state of the moment is. And you've now put yourselves on record as as being opposed to that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it will it will kind of depend on, you know, who ends up bubbling up to the top um, and what the what how the sort of party consensus evolves. But I think maybe maybe even more important than either Iran or North Korea is what Trump is doing to the whole sort of system of international relations, you know, because like like the Europe, like the whole European relationship, like like you've seen that the the uh, opinion polls of Germans you know, they go from like single digit approval of the United States in, in 2008 to like 90 percent in 2009. And now they're back down to single digits again. <laughs> and but now, you know, like in a way that Bush did not Trump really is sort of tearing up the whole international system. I mean, maybe you want to get to trade later, but I mean, you know, alliances and just the, the sense that Europe is kind of on its own. Canada, you know, we're just going to screw them over for no reason. Um, and uh, the the next the, the next Democrat is going to have to deal with maybe trying to salvage something out of that at the same time as they're having to rebuild the State Department from nothing 
And also, uh, China is coming up to be, you know, like a basically a peer nation for the first time since the end of the Cold War. So, like, <laughs> well, and I, I mean, mean, you know, Trump is hastening that in, in right. many ways with, you know, with the way he's approached how he deals with with U.S. allies, Europe, but uh, you know, also with with U.S. allies in in Asia. Yeah, and and so yeah, I mean, just totally jerking around uh, uh, Prime or President President Moon in South Korea, um, and so yeah, I I think that I mean, you know, you can see people like Matt Duss, you know, or, or and and Ben Rhodes to some extent are, are like jumping into that vacuum to sort of start thinking about what a kind of post American like system of international relations would look like, or even, you know, if there could even be like a system, but, you know, uh, and I, and I would guess that, I mean, sheer necessity is going to, is going to force whoever comes up to just like, you know, staff the, 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 State Department and the rest of the executive branch was kind of who whoever is who uh, lying around, and and I would guess you know that it's going to be someone with much more uh, sympathy and or you know necessity to deal with a more powerful left than Obama had, and uh, you know there so that person. I would suspect maybe slash hope is not going to want to just bring in the same tired hacks as before, you know, your, your Anne Marie slaughters and your Samantha powers and all that, that crew, um, you know, it's just like, like, let's, let's, let's deal with this like horrible crisis. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it's, it, there, there's, gonna have to be a lot of international institution building i think after trump is out of office uh and it's it'll be interesting to 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 see how that gets handled uh i mean you already brought up trade and this is kind of the the most um acute i think in some ways problem for democrats it seems to me because you've got a lot of free traders in the democratic party who still don't want to reckon with the consequences of free trade in an intelligent way or in a you know in a realistic way you have trump who is not apparently a free trader uh, but just has, you know, a, a, a sort of sledgehammer mentality. I'm just going to, you know, it's very much a, a winners and losers. And, you know, if we're not, if we, we're running a trade deficit, we must be losing. And, uh, you know, I'm going to treat it like a, like a zero-sum contest. And right now, the Democrats, again, get to benefit, in a, in a sense, from being in the opposition and just kind of being allowed to criticize what Trump is doing, which I think is is very destructive, but they aren't being forced to reckon with the fact that their trade policy isn't good either, and there, are, there needs to be a different way of thinking about trade deals that actually lifts people up instead of looking, you know, scrambling for the, uh, the lowest common denominator. Do you feel like there's any 
movement in the party to to actually kind of tackle that that issue or uh is it you know being kind of covered paid you know covered over by the fact that uh right now you know trump is in office and we we can just point at him and and shout (laughs) um I, I there's definitely some movement and I would add, you know, in addition to the, the how, um, you know, the trade system, you know, cored out Detroit and, um, you know, it leading to a lot of exploitation and pollution in, in other countries. Um, there's also a, the problem of systematic deficits in the United States. You know, so United States has been the importer of last resort for the world economy since like the 1970s. And, you know, we, we can do that because of the, the, you know, the dollar being the reserve world reserve currency and so forth. But, uh, you know, that's it's really not kind of not terribly sustainable. And there's really nothing that could fill the, the gap. And so. Yeah, like Keynes had this interesting idea where you would set up a <clears throat> international bank to set up like a, a to manage international trade, and the point the point would be to militate against both surpluses and deficits to to like get people to have more or less balanced trade because that's the you know the problem is like. Like especially in the eurozone, it has no way to reconcile these. These it's like Germany's so proud of having this big export surplus, but like if you're gonna have that, somebody else has to have a deficit, and they no, you know, people don't like to think about that part of it. But yeah, at any right, rate, but so then like, they wonder why Italy elects two populist parties, and you know, yeah, uh, right, like right, and and um, you know, and and like. If you ever get a smarter Trump in power, it's just like we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're gonna, you know, seize the various levers of of state more intelligently and like wrench our trade deficit down so that those, you know, goods and services are happening, that are being produced in the United States, um, which can be a pretty tricky proposition. Uh, you know, the whole world system could maybe go into like seize up, you know, like a kind of Great Depression thing. Uh, uh, you know, cl- collapse of trade. And so, uh, at any rate, yeah, the the pe- one people I see talking about this a lot are the anti-monopoly crew. Um, you know, Matt Stollers and, you know, who they, they've got a lot, of, a lot of influence in Congress, Elizabeth Warren and so forth. And they they tend to put forward this argument that is often smacks a, a little sinophobic uh, that, that like China is trying to monopolize all the all the uh, production of of commodities um, and, you know, all the manufacturing base that's really productive and they're they're doing that deliberately with their currency policy, and so we got to stick it to those darn Chinese people, uh, which you know I think is like equal parts true and m- maybe not like a best way to, to look at <laughs> right, it exactly. Right. It's a little yeah. Uh, but yeah, and, you know Barry Lynn, who's a great scholar, uh, you know of anti monopoly, has this sort of queasy view on international trade and the. the you know the post-war system thinking about it as like specifically a u.s empire that was run on you know like more beneficial be be uh 
basis for the, like you know all the people who participated in it like mm. but <laughs> at any rate you know they are thinking about it and it and it is it is uh you know they're even if i don't you know agree with their all the prescriptions they they do make a lot of points you know and i think that some people t- really tend to romanticize china a bit like the ruthless dictatorship uh that really is trying to you know re- like st- stretch its its strength a lot and and especially in economic terms you know construct a a economic empire that is not uh, it's terribly scrupulous in Africa or a lot of other countries. Right. And, you know, to, so, you know, to think about that in a way to like, yeah, you know, balanced trade, having a decent proportion, uh, you know, tr- trying to keep production of commodities uh, in the United States to some degree, just for, by virtue of, having access to that and you know so that you're not at the mercy of other countries uh also rare metals you know rare metals that are uh, rare earth metals rather that are very important for production of semiconductors and electronics um and all that sort of thing you know you, it's it's kind of bad on you might say national security grounds to be at the mercy of of uh you know south korea or china for your whole supply of of um you know, those critical, uh, substances. And, um, yeah, I don't, you know, <clears throat> that one, I feel like the, the left has not really been thinking that, that closely about it, you know, um, kind of self-included, I suppose, you know, I have my quibbles with the, uh, the anti-monopolist framework, but I don't, I don't have like a whole system either to, to sort of counter them. Um, but, Certainly, like it's a, it's a place you could start. Yeah, I mean, it's you know when you talk about rare earth metals, for example. I mean, there's there's got to be a a left way of looking at the trade in rare earth metals, where you look at a place like uh, the Congo or you know Afghanistan, where there are a lot of these things in the ground that could be exploited in a way that you know brings those countries out of chaos and uh you know and and is is done fairly and uh allows you know the the kind of access that that high-tech industry needs but you know instead we're we're in a system where it's you have these billions of dollars worth of raw materials in the ground and it keeps those countries in a sense uh in the states that they're in because it funds you know the way that uh china and even you know the u.s to some extent deals with uh the groups that control those materials encourages kind of a a lawless uh, situation a chaotic situation to uh, you know where these things are extracted without a lot of concern for uh, the law or how what kind of effect it's having on the on that you know the the, the home country. Yeah, and certainly you know it's a, it seems like an like the only thing I can really even think of to deal with that that kind of like just absolutely pervasive societal failure um, is 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 to have you know actually functional international institutions that could sort of 
actually, you know, a be trusted and 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 actually behave morally in every country, and b restrain the multinational companies, um, you know, from 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 the U.S., from Europe, from China, from you know, just pillaging these poor poor buggers. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's like the I mean, the DRC. It's it's so so such a mess that I mean, you can't even get to the the good copper uh, in a lot of it. As I understand, you know, there's just no way to get from the interior all the way out to, you know, the place where you might ship it to, to, you know, be processed or whatever. Right. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that it really would have been nice if we hadn't spent the last, uh, you know, 15, 20 years just ripping down all of the in- international institutions that exist. Right. Yeah. I mean, if we'd been building it up so that international law was a real thing and not just a voluntary kind of set of guidelines that uh, if you're powerful enough you don't have to follow them yeah i think we are going to live to regret that in a very very uh uh obvious fashion here over the next couple decades as china is just going to do is going to like well you did all that you uh you know what are you complaining about right right um do you so? Do you think? Um, what do you think is going to be the outcome here of the tariffs, the trade? You know what Trump is doing to antagonize everybody on the one hand, and you know maybe launch a trade war with China, and you know at the same time. Boy, that is a. I mean, that's a tough one to predict. One thing you ca- I think you can say is that Trump and his administration are not remotely competent enough to actually achieve the sort of objectives they're groping towards, you know? Like, I just saw a thing about how they did the steel tariff, and the result was buying more exports because... Um, buying, buying more imports, rather, because uh, rebound effects, basically. You know, it made, uh, made uh, American uh, produce stuff more expensive. Um and so it's. I, I feel like it's the kind of thing where, like, it, it takes a pr- some pretty s- uh, sophisticated subtlety to be able to, like, actually, you know, work the tariff to do what you want. And um, I don't think Trump has r- remotely that understanding, nor does he have the staff to do it for him. And so I predict that that I, if I had to guess, rather, I would say it's going to be a lot of chaotic sort of tit for tat. That probably won't amount to very much, but, you know, it's certainly going to piss off the Europeans a lot and, um, you know, could potentially spark, uh, you know, some sort of broader crisis, you know, from lack of something or the other. You know, all these global supply chains are spread out all over the globe, you know, stuff where you like ship it to like you ship it to Mexico and then you ship it to China to get finished and then you ship it back to the U S and I mean, you know, it's just like such a incredible, fragile, you know, tangle of relationships. So my last question, I'm only going to ask this because you brought up, um, you brought up Keynes's idea of a, of an international bank for that would manage global trade and I have this theory, and it's a, kind of a crank theory, but um, <laughs> I, 
I came up with it, uh, you know, as uh, after Trump uh, cratered the the Iran deal, which I mean it is still uh, admittedly still technically in effect, but I don't think it's going to be in effect for very much longer. Um, and as he was, it was really kind of sunk in after he suddenly announced that his meeting with Kim Jong Un was off. Which of course it's now back on, just as suddenly as it was, you know, canceled. But uh, I feel like you're <laughs> amazingly having only gone through, like, what has it been, fourteen or sixteen or seventeen months of this presidency, which is just uh, astounding. It feels like much longer than that. <laughs> um, but the, that we're already at this point where he's managed to piss off almost everybody uh, in some way around the world. And he, he's done it in a way that makes a lot of, uh, I think, unpopular use of the fact that, uh, as you pointed out, the, the dollar is the, the largest reserve currency in the world, and that gives the U.S. a, a tremendous amount of leverage over the global economy, the the international financial system runs through the U.S., which gives the U.S. a tremendous amount of leverage over the economies of other countries. I feel like the the harder he pushes on things like sanctions that nobody else in the world wants, uh, but you know he's he's prepared to enforce them uh, anyway. The harder he pushes on tariffs, the more you're going to see serious attention given to the idea that maybe the dollar shouldn't be the main global reserve currency and that maybe the international financial system shouldn't all run basically through the United States and that maybe, you know, you're going to see leaders of other countries start to talk about alternatives to that system. Do you, do you think that's a possibility? And how, how rough would that get if, if it actually, you know, if that actually became... Uh, you know, if that was actually something that the rest of the world tried to do. Boy, you're really hitting the big questions here. <laughs> I thought it was a good way to close out. Um, yeah, no, I, you know, this is something I've been thinking about. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is something about, uh, you know, Corey Robbins been saying that, that the you know Republicans are kind of weak, which which I think is true. And Trump is kind of a weak president. But the the thing about weakness is like sometimes when people are weak, they tend to lash out. And that's what Trump's sort of doing to the whole post-war American system. You know, he's like slagging off NATO. He doesn't seem to care about the IMF or any of that other crap. Um you know, the like all this elaborate architecture that is like the foundation of world American power. Um, he doesn't even seem to know it's there, much less understand how it works. And I think that definitely people are going to start talking about that, um, you know, to, to, to try to set up, you know, the some kind of replacement system. And the, the beauty of Keynes is trade system is that you, you it could theoretically deal with any sort of uh, set of countries. You don't need the benevolent, quote, big scare quotes, benevolent hegemon 
uh, as as was needed in the Bretton Woods system, and then after the Bretton Woods system fell apart, that we have now, that you need the U.S. there to be the reserve currency. You know, Keynes said you'd have this special currency called Bancor that you used to settle your international accounts that only countries can use, and that would you know sort of you could you could deal with any kind of trade situation. Um, I, it, it it seems possible, you know, that Europeans will try to try to step into the gap, you know, and be like, ah, you know, we're we're the heart of liberal democracy <laughs> because um, the, the euro is is really <laughs> well that, that, that yeah, that's a stable currency. <laughs> that's exact. I mean, that's kind of the thing. I was just going to say is that the euro is not. It's even worse than, than the dollar uh, in terms of you know. I mean, they 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 have enormous political risk that the cold damn thing will fall to pieces right. you know they're they're they just narrowly avoided what to have having an election that was a referendum on the euro in italy the third largest uh, economy in the eurozone and i mean the fact of the matter is it's been a disaster as a currency and really hasn't benefited anyone including the germans when you look at the relative performance before the uh before they adopted the euro and um, so that's not, you know, it's kind of not really a credible in terms of people just stepping in to be like, here is your replacement sort of global hegemon. Um, doesn't seem like Europe is really up to the task. And I don't think China would be that interested in, it. Uh, though. I mean, what the heck do I know about China? Uh, but I, I definitely think, you know, people like Angela Merkel and and uh, uh Macron and others are going to start making noise about that step, even if they may maybe don't have the uh, uh, courage or ability to sort of go for it. Right. I mean, I, 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 I think the first step will be that they start talking about it, but they, they kind of just talk about it in the hopes that Trump loses in 2020 and, you know, somebody sane comes in and and we can kind of all go back to the way things were but i don't think you can ever go back to the way things were after this i don't think you can trust that the united states isn't going to elect trump 2.0 in eight years or you know it's 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 hard to put the genie back in the bottle and pretend that everything's fine with the u.s political system just because donald trump loses his next election assuming he does uh, yeah. You know, the, there, there's a fundamental condition. There are fundamental conditions that allowed him to win in the first place, and those aren't going away. And I, I think, you know, the the rest of the world is going to have to reckon with that, unfortunately. Yes, absolutely. I mean, who, who, who could possibly trust us to do anything, you know? I've always been sort of baffled by this whole North Korea thing. Like, why would you make a deal that would have to look just exactly like the Iran deal and sort of broad outline <laughs> the country that just tore up the Iran deal for no reason? It would, I mean, it would have to look weaker because North Korea has nuclear weapons. Like, they're not right. giving up their nuclear weapons. They might toss, you know, uh, a a couple of bombs on a scrap heap or deactivate them, but they have the know-how and the technical capacity to build these things now, and they are never going to give that up. So it would have to actually be weaker than the Iran deal, but, you know, right, it'll yeah. have Trump's name on it instead of Barack Obama's, and I guess that's that's what really matters. 
Yeah, and I would suppose that. I mean, I, I, this is just nothing but suspicion because who who in the hell knows what's going on? But that the that the more important parties are South Korea and maybe secondarily China. That you know, if you can sort of get get those folks on the same page, then you just give Trump his big shiny plaque, the Trump <laughs> deal that's better than the Iran deal. Right. Right. And everybody goes home happy. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that seems to be the big thing. They can if they build a Trump hotel in Pyongyang, then you know <laughs> everything burger. will be fine. Well, they're gonna you know they, they're talking about opening a McDonald's there, right? Yeah, like yeah, that might yeah. be the the one. Like, there's serious articles about this. That might be the one accomplishment of the June 12th meeting is that they will agree to let McDonald's open a franchise in Pyongyang. Part of the reason, the rationale for which being, if Trump ever wants to go to Pyongyang and visit with Kim, they'll be able to eat at McDonald's because neither one of them really likes to eat anything but hamburgers. So it'll it'll be, a, they can cater, they can have the McDonald's cater their, their meeting if they ever uh, wind up there together. What a difficult moment in our national history for the satirists out there. I mean, I how can you possibly improve on that? <laughs> uh, well, Ryan, on that note, thank you so much. Uh, I, this was an excellent discussion, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. That's Ryan Cooper, everybody. I will link to his uh uh, his page at the week and you can read all of his excellent work covering politics and uh i said in the intro before we started the interview that uh no offense to the week but you should have op-ed columns in in all the major papers and uh you know be doing your work i, a, I, I agree <laughs> make it happen man new york times why come if you're gonna have brett stevens Come on, come on. This guy is much better than Brett Stevens. Anyway, Ryan, thanks thanks again, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Hey, uh, we're back. Uh, I want to thank Ryan Cooper again for coming on uh, this podcast. Uh, I was very excited that he agreed to do it, and uh, I hope that you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I think, think it was a, a good one. Uh, covered a lot of ground and uh, as I said in the show description I'll link to Ryan's page at the week if you're not reading uh, Ryan's work on a regular basis you should be uh, and I'm also going to put in a link to uh, the blog I mentioned a little ways back there in the interview uh, the fellow travelers blog which is doing a lot of work to try and build a, a left foreign policy uh, so you know, go check those guys out. They've done a few pieces now that, uh, I mean, they're still kind of getting off the ground, but they've done a few pieces that I think have been uh, very good uh, and and very thoughtful. So uh, check them out, and, um, you know, hopefully we can uh, build something that, that pushes the foreign policy discussion in this country in a different direction. Uh, with that, I will uh, say goodbye. And uh, we'll be back again later this week with, uh, presumably, <laughs> to get back to our uh, history series. Uh, there may be another uh, crisis or so to, to talk about instead, but uh, we'll see. Uh, until then, though, 
As always, thanks for listening, and I will uh, talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.